Chris the second in our series this morning, so shall we receive Richard in the normal way? Thank you, Paul and Julie. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you all. Great to be together. Well done for uh, braving the great BCP hurricane of 2021 this morning. My goodness, I think my bin fell over. Tragic. Um, as Paul and Julie said, it's, uh, it's actually a, it's a really big day for us today um, with pledges due in later this afternoon. As they said, we're meeting four o'clock as elders and uh, kind of the big reveal happens. We'll review the situation, pray how God will lead us. And uh, I, I would actually suggest this is probably one of the more significant days in the history of Gateway Church. <laughs> hundred years we've been here. This is a really big one. So please pray for us today as we seek God and Please pray that God would work mightily among us as we uh, look to play our part in extending his kingdom. Obviously, we'll talk about that more tonight at the worship night at uh, Ashley Road. And uh, this morning's sermon actually has much to do with the extending of the kingdom. Um, if you were here last week or if you're part of the church, you'll know that uh, last week we started a new series which will take us through the rest of this year and, uh, and at least the first half of next year. And we're going to be going through the entire Old Testament. And our hope is that that will help us to kind of, A, be able to better read and understand the Old Testament, which is crucial, and B, that in doing so, it'll help you to better understand the New Testament as well. The two things obviously hold together. And uh, as we do that, our hope is that you'll see a, a kind of a consistency and a direction in how God is working through all of history and through every life and how this all relates to his singular plan to rescue and redeem and dwell with mankind. I'd like to think that when you read scripture, you would see that plan. And that's kind of one of the things we want to really draw out in this series, that there is absolutely nothing that is random. Nothing is out of his control. Everything is uh, part of his perfectly orchestrated plan, uh, which reaches its climax one day as we dwell with God in a renewed earth of his making. Hence the title of the series, A House for My Name. This morning we are going to be looking at the story of God and mankind between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. That spans a period of well over a thousand years. And uh, it moves between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Noah and the great flood that wipes out humanity. These are stories that are normally well-known to people, whether you have a faith background or not. And we've got about 30 minutes to do this. So buckle up. It's going to be a rip-roaring ride today. And the title for this morning's uh, sermon is Junior Architects. And what I want to show from this stretch of scripture is that one of the key themes that runs through uh, Scripture is that we are called to partner with God in what He is doing throughout history and that we are made to be like Him and that He's given us work to do. He is the master architect of all creation and all of history and we're invited to be junior architects and partner with Him in filling out His master plan and I'm hoping that whatever it is that you do with your days, whether you're a business person or a nurse or a teacher or a stay-at-home carer or parent or you're at school or university or you're retired, whatever it is that you do with your days, you'll see from this that you are invited 
into partnership with God and his work. And the starting point for this is right at the start of the whole Bible narrative. In fact, day six of creation, you'll remember Matt spoke last week on uh, the first few days of creation. We're in day six of creation today when God makes man. So let's start there. It's just three verses I want us to look at, but I'm going to go slowly because packed into these three verses is what I would suggest is the whole purpose of mankind. The whole purpose of what we as children of God are meant to be doing with our days. So let's read this together. This is Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, let's unpack these three verses. There are three key things that they say, and I want to draw those out because they are uber important to what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. Firstly, verse 26 and 27, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. The first thing, we're created in the image of God. Hold on to that thought. Secondly, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. First thing, we're created in the image of God. Second thing, we are to increase in number and to fill the earth. Third thing, also verse 28, God says, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the birds, and the animals. We're created in the image of God called to fill up the earth, and told to subdue the earth and rule over it. So the first thing I want us to consider this morning is that we are made in the image of God. If you want to sound clever, you can use the Latin translation. You can always sound clever using a Latin translation. It's sometimes known as the Imago Dei. Uh, That means that every person in this room, according to this account, is made in the image and the likeness of God. Of God. That's a pretty significant statement. And if it's true, then it has to have some pretty serious implications for us as well. Because of course, an image is a copy of something. If if you make an image of something, it's supposed to look like the original and take on its characteristics. If I make a cake and then I make another one in its image, you're supposed to look at the second one and go, oh, it's a cake, because you see something of the original, and you've known that from looking at the original. So at its most basic level, you're supposed to look at an image and see something of the original. Now, for us, to be made in the image of God is theologically very, very important and needs to be understood. And if you grasp this concept... I think you're almost all the way towards understanding how to live this life. 
In the ancient world, kings of various civilizations were considered the image of their god. If you saw the king, you were supposed to in some way understand the rulership of their god. And because kings, just like us, couldn't be everywhere at the same time and travel was slow, they would set up statues, images of themselves throughout the land. And these statues were supposed to let everyone know that the king's rule extended to wherever these statues or images were found. And so in that sense, to be made in the image of God doesn't mean that kind of God has four fingers and a thumb and a nose and wears clothes like we do. It means that we carry within us the image of what God is like through the infilling of the Holy Spirit and that we have the capacity to know him and to respond to him, unlike any other part of creation. But most importantly, it means that we are delegated a godlike function in the world to represent him and to demonstrate what he is like as a, and as a marker that where we reside, where humanity resides, there he is too, that he exists as ruler and king. Like those statues or images that represented the extent of the king's rule, so too as images, we represent the extent of God's rule. In the ancient world, it was the kings who were the images of the gods. And the job of man was to kind of meet the needs of the gods. But in Genesis, the whole process has been, as one writer puts it, democratized. Every man and woman bears God's stamp. We are all designed to be his representative. Now, if you ever feel low of self-worth or like your dignity has been taken from you, like you don't have a purpose or that you're past your sell-by date or that you have nothing to offer, this narrative turns that narrative completely on its head. It says you're made by God. You're made like God to represent God. And then on the sixth day of creation, when this process started, God himself looked at it and said, this is good. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, made to rule over it all. We're really not good at talking about this stuff, but that's the Bible story. That's the story of God and his people. Every human life has infinite dignity and value and worth to God. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us who we are. We're God's image bearers. And then we get into verse 28, and this is all about what we're meant to do. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, let's pull this all together. This is really important. This for me is actually the starting point for how to understand the Bible and to see what God is doing throughout history. We are made in the image of God to bear his image in the world, to fill up the earth with more image bearers, to rule over creation and to subdue it as we do. We'll get to that part in a minute. What we'll see, hopefully, time and time again in this preaching series and throughout the Bible, and even today, is that God has always wanted a people for himself, and that these people will be people that he can love and who will love him, and to create a place where he might dwell with them. And so he creates that people. He fills them with the ability to know him. He shows himself to them. He walks with them. He literally walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tells them, now go. And fill up the earth with others like you, who will bear my image, who I can love and who will love me. 
that's, that's eventually how this whole story ends as well, with a humanity who've said yes to God throughout the ages, living in communion, face-to-face relationship with God in a garden paradise again in heaven. That's why the very last chapter of the Bible, the versions that we use here, in our versions, that chapter is called Eden Restored. So God says, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. That's his command to us, to humanity. That word subdue, it means to bring order out of chaos. Again, this is one of the things we see God doing at creation. He's taking the raw materials of the universe. Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us that it was chaos. And he brings it into order. He commands light to illuminate the darkness. And he subdues all existing matter by forming the earth and the heavens and the birds and so on. He literally subdues creation. He is the master architect of all things. But this sermon is called Junior Architects, and that's because God tells us to continue this subduing, ordering, creating work. Now, to get to this, we need to consider the geography of the earth at the time of creation. In uh, Genesis 2, verse 8, we are told that there was a land named Eden. Apologies to any cartographers out there. This isn't a scale drawing of Eden. You can see Eden, and over in the east of that land, there was a garden, and that's where God placed Adam and Eve. Outside the land of Eden, as you can see from this drawing, was the rest of the earth, okay? So in Genesis 1, verse 28, Adam is told to subdue the earth, and in Genesis 2, 15, God tells Adam to work and maintain the garden. In other words, God is saying, here in this garden... This is the place of beauty that I've made by subduing matter, by bringing order out of what was chaos. You, Adam, are to maintain this place, and this will be the place where you and I meet and dwell together. Outside the garden is Eden, which I've created, and your job is to extend Eden into the rest of creation. Here in the garden, you're an image of God bearing gardener who meets with God. Maintain this place. It's where we dwell together. In that sense, you have a priestly duty to look after the meeting place, the house, if you like, where God and man will meet. But you are also to exercise dominion as a king outside of this place by subduing it and bring order to it because it's currently chaotic. And the way you bring order out of chaos is to bring the presence and the people of God into that place to extend what was happening in the garden. You're the priest in the garden. Look after it and exercise priestly duties by extending the garden, by ruling over creation and subduing it like a king. That uh, that word, subdue, is often used in the Bible as a way of describing enslavement, as might happen in a war victory where you conquer a land and then you enslave their people and assets. You've subdued them. There's a sense in which an artist subdues the paint and the canvas, literally forces it from a formless state and brings it into an ordered beauty. Or a carpenter subdues a tree into a beautiful piece of fine furniture. This is what God is doing at creation. And this is his commission to us. Bear my image. Guard over and tend to the place where we meet like a priest. Extend the garden by subduing and ruling over the earth like a king. And in so doing, we partner as we create a house for my name. 
a place where the fellowship and the communion and relationship with God can be extended into the furthest places. And that call is on us even now. Let's consider these three things a little bit further. Firstly, we're made in the image of God. What a grace upon us that we are made by God, known by God, that God has invested himself in us. One of the things that I read about a lot, I'm a bit geeky like this, and one of the things I'm really just very interested in is the idea of artificial intelligence, the idea that one day mankind might create a kind of a technological digital intelligence that can think and reason and act and learn completely independently of man. I'm not quite sure how I feel about this yet. I'm still working it out, but I'm interested in finding out kind of what drives us to do this and the pros and the cons. And I often listen to these great minds discussing this, and they discuss these things, the benefits and the dangers and the reason for why we would even try this in the first place. One of the guys I was listening to recently, he is, he's, a, he's a major thinker, if not the biggest thinker in this world, regarded as the father of virtual reality. He said that when they asked him, this is a completely atheistic man, they said to him, why? Why would we do this? And he said, when you boil it all down, in his opinion, what, what drives this desire to create life is that we're designed to create life. That's why the urge in us, in so many of us, is so strong to produce offspring and to be part of a family. And that deep down inside, he says, we're all lonely and we desperately desire to be known and loved by others. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's, that's not new news if, if you're a Christian. And all this stuff is because we're made in the image of God, the ultimate creator. And listen to his verdict on this. This is what it says in Psalm 139. This is our standing before God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together. In my mother's womb, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. You don't make bad things. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them? We are created by God. We are known by God, knitted together in our mother's wombs by God in that intimate place. He made us and breathed life into us and filled us with his image. What kind of a God would do that and why? Is this not the behavior of the most loving God? Of a father who desires a people and deeply longs to be involved in every part of their lives? Who would say no to a father like that? I'm sure that one day, increasingly, uh, technology has the potential to assist us in all sorts of ways, but there really is no such thing as artificial life without the very breath of God breathed into it, unless it's knitted together in the mother's womb. It's just wiring and algorithms. Humanity is created above all things in the very image of the creator, and he gives us all creation is our realm and our work. This is why we call him Father. 
He creates and he loves and he blesses and he gifts us as a father, as the perfect father. And as he creates and forms life in us and breathes himself into us and calls us to partner with him, he says to us, Now go out into the world, my children, and bear my name in the whole earth. Represent me, multiply as you make new disciples and bring order wherever you go and whatever realm you find yourself in by subduing and ruling over creation. Gateway, this is our work. Extend the peace and order and the beauty of Eden wherever you find yourself. Working in front of an Excel spreadsheet, bringing some sort of order there, or raising a family, or praying for your family, or serving the church, or working as a nurse, or a lawyer, or a shopkeeper. In every realm of life, rule over and subdue that realm as a priest and a king. And as you do so, you'll be imaging me. And as you do that, call others into bearing my image to multiply image bearers. Fill up the earth, restore Eden, create a house for my name. That's the, that's the basis of humanity. That's who we are, that's what we're supposed to do. And there are some really other fun ideas in this part of Scripture too that we'll see coming up again and again in this series. Eden is created on a mountain, and uh, the garden is also on a mountain. Rivers flow from Eden into the surrounding lands, and so here in the garden, on a mountain, God meets with a man and a woman, and we'll see these themes repeated again and again. Wherever God meets with mankind on a mountain, something significant is about to kick off. And again and again, we'll encounter the concept of life-giving waters flowing from the place of God into the surrounding lifeless lands in order to bring life. In fact, in Revelation, it says that in heaven, a river flows from the throne of God and brings life and healing. When Jesus died on the cross, on a mountain, by the way, Golgotha, that's the same height as Mount Moriah, where Solomon's temple was built, the meeting place of man and God in those days, 731 meters above sea level. It says, as Jesus died, that living water flowed from him, bringing life and healing. And as we know, Jesus' death is our life. He dies so that mankind might meet with and be in relationship with God. Living water is always flowing from the presence of God. Mountains and high places are significant in the story of God and his people. And just think about what this means for us in the church. How does Jesus describe the church? We're a city, where? On a hill. And here, it's here in the church, this high place, metaphorically speaking, with his people that Jesus resides. And the commission of the church is to water the surrounding lands and bring life and healing. These are all image-bearing, subduing, creation-ruling things to do. And just as Adam was called to be a priest in the garden, look at how the New Testament refers to us, the church now. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, his segula, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are priests called to be the people of God and image him and multiply his kingdom by declaring his praises both back to him and into the world. 
It all holds together. Genesis, Jesus, 1 Peter, Revelation, the whole lot. The Bible holds together. God is creating for himself a people with whom he can dwell. And we are counted in that number. And you can be counted in that number. He's looking for image bearers to love and to know him. And he has work for you. Now, of course, we know that things don't take a continual upward trajectory in Eden. Adam and Eve sin. Adam essentially fails in his duty as a priest to guard and protect the garden by allowing the serpent in. And the serpent deceives Eve and her and Adam eat of the forbidden tree and they fall and they side with Satan's advice and they satisfy what they think is right. They walk by what they can see, the fruit, instead of what God has commanded. And that has been the anatomy of sin ever since. Whenever we sin, we're walking by sight instead of by faith. And that distances us from God. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. And God cast them out of the garden because unholiness and holiness cannot coexist. That's the definition of what holiness is. It's pure and perfect. And God is pure and perfect. And he's pure light. And in him can there be no darkness. So mankind is removed from the darkness, but from the garden, but not before God gives a glimmer of hope for how he will redeem the situation. And as he puts man and woman and serpent out of the garden, away from his presence, he says to the snake, because of what you have done, I will put enmity, hardship, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, the offspring of Eve, and you will strike his heel. God is both pronouncing a, a judgment and also calling out what the rest of human history will look like. The serpent, Satan, will constantly attack humankind, afflicting us, accusing us, our great adversary, there will be enmity between the offspring of Eve and the serpent. This is what God says. But also wrapped up in that pronouncement is the first glimmer of hope as well. It's the first sign of the gospel. He will crush your head as you strike his heel. What God is saying is that the serpent will always strike at the heel. Satan will always want to bruise the people of God. But an offspring of Eve is coming, one who is the ultimate priest and king. And when Satan snaps at his heel, and it looks like he's defeated God as Jesus dies on the cross, at that very moment, a decisive crushing of the serpent's head will occur. Because as we know, the cross is victory for the church. In the most unlikely way, God demonstrates in AD 33 what he said in place at the dawn of time, that he will have a people for himself to love and to love him and to dwell with them. And when that all goes wrong in the garden, he incarnates himself. He comes to us in Jesus in a dirty city in the Middle East, and he works as a carpenter, and he travels around towns and villages, and he teaches that relationship with God is possible. And the way to do that is to come to God in Jesus, which is precisely the same message 2,000 years later to all of us here this morning. God the Father sends the Son to redeem his people and to get his children back. But for a moment, let's just go back to the garden, because we're still only in Genesis 3, and see what happens next. Adam and Eve are put out of the garden and sent to a land east of Eden, away from God's presence. And so the journey to the east and the journey away from God for mankind begins. 
And look what happens as mankind becomes more and more displaced from the presence of God. Next comes Cain and Abel, the first two babies born into humanity. Before long, one has killed the other, and Cain is sent out even further. Genesis 4.16, Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived east of Eden. Mankind is moving further from God, and things are getting worse. Before long, we're in Genesis 6, the lowest point in humanity where mankind has thrown off all restraint. And instead of mankind working the land and subduing it in order to bring order and beauty and a dwelling place for man and God, the complete opposite has happened. This is Genesis 6, verse 5 to 7. This is one of the most unhappy things you'll ever read. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Man. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. And so we come to the great flood that wipes out humanity. But even here, God hasn't changed the plan. He's still reserving for himself a remnant of humanity to have as a people to love and who will love him. And we see this in verse 8 as we encounter a man named Noah. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 1. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Oh, that they might say about that, that about us one day. And so God makes a covenant with this man Noah, another offspring of Eve. He says, make an ark, Take with you these animals because a mighty flood is coming. It will wipe out the rest of creation. Mankind has repeatedly and continually chosen death and the serpent and uh, all of his ways uh, over the wholeness and the life and the presence that you could have had in me. And so I'll give you what you've chosen. And the earth is flooded and everything in it is destroyed, but not this little ark that just bobbles along on the top, containing this little family from which God will get the plan back on track. Genesis 8, verse 1, as this is happening, it says, But God remembered Noah. And the floodwaters eventually recede, and Noah and his family emerge from the ark, the seed of what will continue to go on as the people of God. And the first thing that Noah does as he comes out of the ark is he goes up on a mountain, and he builds an altar, and he worships God. Noah becomes the priest that Adam was meant to be, and he becomes the great-grandfather of what will one day become the worldwide people of God that was always intended. And look what God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. In the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, Noah, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Recognize those words? The plan hasn't changed, and God has found a way to make it possible. But as we'll see throughout the series, this this sort of thing is relatively short-lived where we are involved. Man loves to kind of go east, away from the presence of God, so that he can do what he pleases. And that's true of us even today. Next week, we're going to pick up the story from here as mankind gets up to it again and tries to build a huge tower in Babel so that they can be like God, and how God's kindness and mercy towards us shines through even in that period of history. But for now, let's just recap where we're up to and what this means for us. Firstly, we're made in the image of God. Every one of us. There is no such thing as an accidental life. And each life has incredible value and dignity placed upon it by God. 
That's why, as Christians, we defend life and we protect life from the moment of conception until the time when God says it's time for us to return to him. That's why we have to think clearly about start and end of life ethics in this day and age where mankind is so tempted to play at God, making decisions over human life. That's a complete failure of priesthood and a repeat of Eve's mistake to do what she, saw, what she thought was right by what she saw rather than to live by faith in what God has said. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, not by the earthly substances of this world, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we're called to do. Number two, we are created in his image to know him and to represent him in the world and to fill up the earth with other image bearers. That's our work. That's our mission. That's how we extend Eden. That's a direct instruction to tell others about him and to disciple one another into relationship with God. Jesus' final and greatest instructions to mankind, he calls the disciples up, incidentally up onto a mountain where he met with them, and they communed together, and he says, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. That's the commission on us. That's how we fruitfully multiply in the earth. What a great privilege that next week we're going to be baptizing ads over there and Abby Hunter as well. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Number three, we are called to guard over the place where God dwells with his people and to extend that meeting place outwards into the world as we partner with God in how we do our work. Has God called you to lead other people in the workplace? Has he called you to raise a family? Has God called you to be a social worker or a butcher or a road sweeper, to serve in the church, to pray? Do it all for the glory of God and tend the garden as you do so, so that we image God by bringing order out of chaos and calling others to do the same until the whole earth is filled with his glory as Jesus returns and a redeemed humanity lives forever with God in a renewed earth. And this also means that we have a priestly duty in the church to guard her, to beautify her, to serve her, to protect her. If you're not currently serving in the church, this isn't about being on a rota. It's about living in community and building up the community together. Get serving. If you haven't yet pledged for the building fund, as Paul and Julie encouraged us earlier on, it's not just about bricks and mortar. It's never just been about bricks and mortar. It's about partnering with God in making sure that we have the facilities here and the means to serve the poor and preach the gospel and baptize people and extend Eden. And finally, this has a very, very personal application for you if you are far from God or even feeling like you are. Everything that he is doing is about creating a people for himself to love and who will love him. That's the entire context of history. And that's why Jesus went to the cross for you. If you feel far from him, you aren't. Scripture tells us that he's near. If you feel low of worth, you aren't. You're made in his image. If you feel irrelevant, you aren't. He's given you work to do. I heard somebody saying, even this week, he's not calling up Martin Luther. He's not raising the Apostle Paul from the dead at the moment. He's not resurrecting St. Augustine. 
It's you and me. That's who he's given work to do in this age. If you are chained up by life circumstances, well, there's good news. He breaks chains. He brings peace. He's always about extending and restoring the peace and the shalom of Eden. He is the great order bringer in a place of chaos. If you feel hopeless, you aren't. He has called you into his family, and his family is defined by hope. And our hope is in Jesus, who leads us and loves us in this life, as we wait for him to love us and lead us into the next, where all distance and fear and hopelessness and pain and sorrow will be banished forever. You can come to him today. He's building a house for his name. Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment and consider this, and I'll pray for us. And let's see what the Holy Spirit will do as we come back together to sing in a moment. Man alive, Lord, you've made us in your image. That's absolutely crazy. We're so grateful. We're so grateful that um, because you are love, and as an overflow of your love, because you are brimming with love, you decided to create us and bring us into relationship with you to share your son with us. And you chose each one of us by name. And long before the foundations of the earth were laid, you knew us, each one of us. You knew the days of our lives. They were all numbered. You knew the words that we were going to speak. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. You placed your hands on our heads. And there's nowhere we can go that's too far for you to find us, follow us, be with us, and save us completely. And we are so grateful for that. And I ask, Lord, that for all of us, that we would learn to walk in this high priestly calling to image you into the world and to call others in to the ends of the earth as you build your house, as you create for yourself a people to love and who will love you. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the dignity and the value and the honor that you've bestowed on us. And I pray that we would work hard at helping to beautify your house. And God, I want to pray, even this morning, as we've talked about subduing and ordering the earth, as our world leaders meet in Glasgow at COP26, you would speak through them and work through them. Lord God, that uh, where there's currently chaos, you'd bring order. Lord, I pray peace and shalom over every person in this room. I ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.